So tonight we come to chapter 17 of Genesis and uh, what a chapter it is. Really, really amazing. Let's start together. Let's read it together. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house, or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house 
and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a stranger, were circumcised with him. Guys, there are very, there's three very significant things that happen in this chapter. First, circumcision will be instituted. Secondly, the son Isaac will be specifically promised. And third, Abram and Sarai's names will be changed. We're going to see a mix of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we will learn how God works to accomplish obedience in Abram's life and in our lives as well. Now, as we approach this passage, there are a couple of things I would like you to keep in mind as we're going through. First, I want you to think of yourself as Abram did. I want you to think about the fact that he's 99 years old at this time. Who's the oldest guy in this room? How, how old are you, sir? I am 78. Anybody got more than that? I'm, I'm looking at you, Santa. How old are you, Lloyd? 72. Okay, we got 78 here. Anybody else? You? 70. Okay. 88, 90. Okay. Add 21 years to these guys, okay? All right? I want you to keep that in mind. Now, 24 years ago from this point, Abram was 75 years old, okay? A couple of years older, younger than this guy right here. What's your name, sir? Rich, okay. A few years older than, or younger than Rich, rather. He left Haran in obedience to the call of God in, in chapter 12. After Abram and Lot separated and Abram had defeated the Eastern Alliance of Kings in chapters 13 and 14, God formally made a covenant with Abram, specifically telling him that his heir would come from his own body. You find that in chapter 15, verse 4. And then he gives him a more exact description of the land that he would possess later on in that same chapter. Now, 13 years prior to where we are here tonight, in chapter 17, Abram took a wrong turn. Following the advice of his wife, Abram attempted to produce the heir God had promised by following what was really an established practice of the day taking Sarai's maid, Hagar, as his wife. Now, we know that this led to disunity and heartbreak for everyone involved. Now, for the record, I want it to be known that my wife only gives me good advice. Okay? You recording this, Rafi? I want to make sure she gets a CD of this study. All right? 
No, no, really. My wife, she just tells me to pray about everything. So, hear that, honey? Okay. So, um, so as far as we can tell, God has not spoken concerning this whole issue uh, since he encountered Hagar on her way back to Egypt. Okay? The second thing I'd like you to keep in mind, you know, as we've been going through Genesis here, particularly chapters 12, 15, and here in 17, remember that the call of Abraham initiates the primary story of the Bible. And the reason for that is because he's the beginning of a nation. And the purpose of that nation is to bring into our lives the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So keep those two things in mind. Now, between the end of chapter 16 and the start here of chapter 17, there is a period of silence of 13 years. Now, some say that this is just 13 years of nothing, you know, wasted years, you know, that nothing significant happened during this time. You know, and even though there's nothing recorded, I, I completely disagree. I rather tend to believe that this may have been some of the most beneficial years in Abram and Sarai's lives. Now, you may think, you know, how can you say that? You know, how can not hearing from God for 13 years be good? Well, let me explain. These 13 years were not wasted time at all. They served to illustrate the consequences of serving God in the power of the flesh and of acting presumptuously. And they also serve to intensify the impossibility of Abram and Sarai ever having a child between them. Now imagine the frustration of Abram and Sarai as the years pass, one after another, still they had no child in fulfillment of God's promise. Guys, these 13 years were not wasted at all. Because in this way, if a child was born at this time, it would surely be a work of God and not of men. You know, it appears that in the light of all this difficulty, Abram had come to believe that Ishmael was his only hope for an heir. You know, I have no doubt believing that Abram had spent the last 13 years living with the strife and the turmoil that his sinful decision had produced in Ishmael. Now, as we look to our text, Abram was about to learn that God's promises are fulfilled not by might nor by power, but by his spirit, as Zechariah 4, 6 tells us. Look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. These are the words that break the silence between God and Abram. Now, I think Abram must have been greatly encouraged by that encounter with God. You know, who wouldn't be? You know, all that silence and then all of a sudden God pops into your life. I... I, I know I would be greatly encouraged, and I think he was as well. But I want you to notice how God manifests himself 
more fully in terms of his character and attributes. He refers himself, refers to himself for the first time in the scripture as God Almighty. All right? The Hebrew name is El Shaddai. This is actually the third name that we have seen for God. First, we had El or Elohim, which describes God as creator. Secondly, we had Yahweh, which is the redemptive or covenant name for God. But here, El Shaddai, on the other hand, refers to the God who is all-sufficient, who, the God who constrains nature, the one who actually causes nature to do as against itself. In other words, God is capable of working miracles. And as we will see, God will overpower nature to fulfill his promise to the point that even an old man and an old woman will bear a child. You know, if you think that there's something in your life that's too difficult for God to deal with, uh, I can assure you that you can put your trust in God to work out any situation that you have. He is the Almighty God. He goes on and tells Abram to walk before me and be blameless. Now, the word blameless means complete. It means whole, having integrity. Abram was to conduct himself as if always being in God's presence, which we know is all the time, right? We know that. You know, but this can prove to be a real challenge to us, as I'm sure it was to Abram. You know, it's, it's very easy to be blameless on Sunday morning or Tuesday night. You know, but what happens during the rest of our week is who we really are. You know, when we first built the gym, I can't remember what year it was. But we used to have bands play in there. Anybody remember that? Before they, they moved them to the sanctuary. And, and I remember one band in particular. I can't remember the name. But one of the guys was describing how easy it was for him to be one person at church and around church friends and then another person altogether apart from that. And... Um, he likened it to having multiple personality disorder, which I thought was a very, very fitting way to describe that. But the truth for us as believers is we can control that through the decisions we make to either walk with God or not. These are things that we're faced with on a daily basis. God wants his people to be people of integrity, not duplicity. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself constantly trying to serve two masters, and I catch myself, you know, to please self and Christ. You know, uh, we can be quite content to serve Christ if we can, you know, get a little bit of self-service in there too. You know, and God essentially is here is saying to Abram, you know, this can no longer be permitted. You've come to the place where your dual allegiance can no longer be tolerated. Walk before me, he says. Be wholehearted. Be holy on my side. Be mine. This is what he's t saying to Abram. You know, when, 
when we became Christians, we asked Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, right? Now, when I did that, when I made that decision, I didn't understand what all that would involve. But I knew that in one way or another, that his willingness to save me involved my permission to Jesus to be the Lord over my life. I knew that. Before I was a believer, I made decisions on the basis of how I felt and what I wanted to do. But as I grow in my relationship with the Lord, as I grew in my relationship with the Lord, the Holy Spirit began to reveal himself to me in a very practical way. Telling me, hey, uh, don't go there. Or you need to stop doing that or remove yourself from the situation. Very practical things. He was beginning to tie, or cut the ties rather, that bound me to the world and, and the self-serving life that was in me. This is essentially what he's saying to Abram here. Walk before me and be blameless. Be wholehearted, be sold out for me. The Lord continues in verse 2. He says, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Two times in the verse, God says, I will. The promises of this covenant, there's no mistake, they're from God. He's the one who's taking the initiative here. The word establish means to set forth in motion, to bring to reality what was previously promised. God promised Abram a child back in chapter 15, verse 4. It's been 13 years. Ishmael's now 13 years old. Abram, by this time, must have come to believe that Ishmael was his only hope for an heir. God said the child would come from his own body, and certainly Ishmael did come from his own body. But God in chapter 15 never mentions anything about who the mother would be. Never mentions about who the mother would be. So Abram naturally thinks that Ishmael could be the promised child. But it won't be until verse 16, as we'll see a little bit later, that God specifically tells Abram that Sarai will be blessed and that he shall give him a son by her. Now this is where the Lord really begins to fulfill his promises to Abram. The word covenant is central to this whole narrative all the way through verse 22. The phrase, my covenant, occurs nine times. The word covenant by itself occurs another four times. He finishes verse 2 by telling Abram that he will multiply him exceedingly. You know, and that's been God's promise to Abram since back in chapters 12 and 15. This is an ongoing revelation for him. Look at verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, Upon hearing these words from God, Abram falls on his face. Now, he responds this way because he met with God. This is not a small thing. 
you know, in the scripture, when people meet with God, there is some form of physical expression. Typically, our posture reflects the attitude of our heart. Sometimes it's very difficult to worship God without being expressive. You know, the idea of worshiping God, you know, within oneself, you know, just very quietly, you know, is fine and all. But it's really a Western phenomenon. And that it's, this isn't practiced by the rest of the world and, and certainly not in the eternal state according to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You know, it's been nice lately to hear Pastor Sam, you know, tell us, you know, in worship that we can remain standing or we can sit down. I've, I've really enjoyed that. You know, but that's one way to express our worship and, and reverence to God by standing in his presence. You know, that... That reminds me of, a, of something that I witnessed a few years back, a couple of things actually. And I, I think I might have shared this with some of you guys before, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention it again just because it, it's so fitting. Uh, when my wife and Amy and I were dating, we had the opportunity to go see a uh, singer-songwriter by the name of Don Francisco. And uh, he was playing a little concert at a very small church in Long Beach. You know, so we uh, we got tickets and we went down there. And, you know, I wasn't really a believer. At least I, I can't remember. I don't think I was. I was just kind of playing around with the, uh, the idea of Christianity. And uh, little did I know that God would use that night uh, in a very meaningful way for my benefit later on in my life. But he performed a song called He's Alive. And that song is usually played around Easter because it talks about the resurrection. And the whole song is basically a build-up or a crescendo to a complete praise and worship ending that live, when he did it live, seemed really to go on for like 10 or 15 minutes. And I had never experienced anything like that before. Everyone in that room was on their feet, hands and arms like this just singing, singing, and, and the words were, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive and I'm forgiven, heaven's gates are open wide. And it was one of the most awesome experiences as a Christian I've ever had. You know, there was no one jumping around or, or you know, causing a scene, you know, just a group of people freely, you know, decently and in order, expressing, you know, in a very powerful, expressive way, their devotion and praise to the Lord. It, it was really incredible. Now to the other experience. There's a church on the campus of where my kids went to high school. And this church, you know, they're, they're affiliated with the school. Uh, they take their, these kids on these trips every few years. They go across the country, and, and over the course of the, you know, many years, they developed a relationship with a church in Washington, D.C. And one year, their youth group came to sing at this church, so they scheduled them to perform. And, you know, my wife and I wanted to go, and we thought it would be something neat. So, you know, these kids were really amazing. They were 
kind of a gospel-oriented group. And they were really good. You know, my wife and I were there, you know, enjoying the worship. You know, we were clapping and singing and, you know, you couldn't help it. It was just so good. You just had to praise the Lord. You, you've been there, you know? Well, there was a mother and a daughter, you know, that were members of that church sitting right in front of us. And, you know, they were just sitting still. And then the daughter, I would say she was probably fifth or sixth grade at the time. She started to sing and she started to sway a little bit. And then she started clapping. And immediately her mother grabbed her hands and told her not to clap. And I just thought to myself, wow, you're stopping a child of God, a child from worshiping the Lord. Instantly, I thought of the scripture, it's better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you were cast into the ocean than stumble one of these little ones. You know, I, I understand that people have different views and different ways of, of worshiping God, but to stop a child from worshiping God, I, 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 I just couldn't get it. You know, when you meet with God, guys, I encourage you to express yourself to him. You know, if you're not comfortable doing so publicly, do it privately, but do it. Look at verse 4 and 5. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So Abram is not just the father of the Jewish nation. He's to be the father of other nations besides Israel. God here expands the promises by saying that Abram will be a father of many nations. Before, God had only said that Abram would be the father of a great multitude. But now, Abram is said to be the father of a multitude of nations. That word nations is a key word here. It's repeated three times in verses 4 through 6 and should serve as a reminder to us that God's program includes all people, every tribe and tongue, people and nation, Revelation 5, Revelation 7. You see, God promised Abraham a seed, and that seed was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, of course. We know that. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Starting in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect for if the inheritance is of the law 
It is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, that, what we just read in Galatians 3, means that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be Abraham's seed if they belong to the one seed who is Christ. Look at verse 29, same chapter. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is how the promise is fulfilled. God greatly expanded the promise. You see, God called Abraham and promised to make him a blessing to the world through Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham. The word seed specifically refers to Christ. Now, if you would, go back to Genesis chapter 22. He says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That word, seed, there is in the singular form. It doesn't say seeds. It's not plural. God only recognizes the seed and the lineage that comes through Isaac because that line leads to Jesus Christ, not Ishmael. Chapter 22 of Genesis, as we'll see in a few weeks, is all about the offering of Isaac. You say, well, Well, what about Ishmael? God said he would multiply his descendants exceedingly, so much that they couldn't be numbered. Abraham, or Ishmael is Abraham's son as well, right? Certainly that's Abraham's seed. Well, that's a good point. Let's stop and take uh, an inventory here. We have Abraham, or we have Abram, actually, whose name is about to be changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. At this point, how many sons does he have? Right? Who is that son? Ishmael. Very good. Now, for a man who has the name father of a nation or of a multitude, I can only imagine how hollow this must have sounded to Abraham having the new name and only one son, and that son by a slave. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you know, God, we know God's going to promise a son through Sarah, right? In verse 19. But right now he has one son. Look at verse 2 of chapter 22. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait a minute. What about Ishmael? If you're not sure, look at verse 12. 
And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. If that doesn't do it for you, look at verse 16. And said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. What does it mean in Hebrew when there's repetition? Emphasis. God is being very emphatic here. Right? This whole storyline leads us back to verse 18. In your seed, 22, verse 18, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That ties into Galatians chapter 3 that we just read. That gives us the singular word seed. Guys, God does not recognize Ishmael is a son of Abraham because Ishmael is a product of the flesh. God will not honor anything or any work that stems from the power of the flesh. Remember, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. This is the huge debate between the Quran and the Bible. What we see now on a daily basis when you turn on the TV or read the newspaper with Al-Qaeda and Hamas and Hezbollah, ISIS, all this terrorism and anti-Semitism, this hatred for Israel and the United States is a direct result of the conflict that started with a bright idea between Sarai and Abram to help God out. God doesn't need our help. Back to 17, look at verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. God changes his name to Abraham. And what God is doing here, he gives him the added assurance that he would have a multitude of descendants by changing his name. Abraham knew what this name meant. But more importantly, the promise is so important and the covenant is so important that nothing less than a new man is required. God makes a new man out of Abram by giving him a new name. And that's why he told him in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. God wanted a new man. He wasn't settling for the old. You know, God makes us new. When we come to Christ and gives us a new name, he gives us the name of his son, Christ. That's why we're called Christians. It means Christ-like. I also believe Abram saw God in a very new way. God approached Abram with a new name. A new name that he hadn't heard before, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God of the impossible. You know, whenever you see God in a new way, it should always make a corresponding change in your life for the better. The fact that God comes to Abraham identifying himself by a new name that indicated his character and ability to do the impossible, the fact that God required a new man out of Abram, and the fact that God changes Abram and Sarai's names is all evidence that God's plan is in motion. God is at work. Look at verse 6. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. God promises Abraham many descendants. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. Notice the first two words of verse 6, I will. That's a key phrase. These words occur five times in two verses, verses 6 through 8. Five times. Not only would nations come from Abraham, but even kings, eventually culminating in Jesus, the king of kings. Look at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. We worship God individually, but God also wants to establish his everlasting covenant with Abram and his, Abraham and his descendants and, and with our family members as well, you know, who trust in Christ in the future. Verse 8, also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You know, when I read this verse, if only our president would read this and believe this and stop trying to give Israel's rightful ownership of this land to everyone else who hates them, why are we negotiating with Iran? Can one of you tell me? Is there a good reason? I don't get it. You know, these are people that burn our flag, that say death to America. They call us the great Satan. Why are we negotiating with these people? The last phrase of, of uh, verse 8 is very significant, and I will be their God. God wants our relationship with him to affect and change our lives. This makes perfect sense. You know, you wouldn't expect to get married without it modifying your life at all, right? You know, imagine someone saying to you, yeah, I'm married, you know, but I don't let it affect my life. You know, I do what I want with my time and my money. I don't spend time with my wife. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk with her on occasion, you know, but only when I really need something from her. You'd think that that's a pretty strange way for a married man to behave, right? Yet people think they can behave this way with God all the time. How much time do we spend in prayer or reading the word, getting to know who God is in a real way? In case you haven't noticed, guys, we are married to Christ. You know, I keep hearing about all these guys I knew in the past leaving their wives and their kids, and it's very sad. Guys that I would never, ever have expected to do so. And the only thing I can think is either they didn't understand the relationship between Christ and his bride or they're just flakes making really bad choices. And I tend to think it's the latter of the two. Look at verse 9 all the way through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and you, your descendants after you. Every male child among you must be cir- or shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Seems that God is very serious about this. Previously, God had required very little of Abraham other than to pack up and leave Ur in chapter 12 and then believe in his promise in chapter 15, which, by the way, tells us that Abram's faith and belief in God's promise was accounted to him for righteousness. Now what God does is he expands the covenant and obligations one step further. Now God requires obedience, and that obedience comes in the form of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin. Now, as I was reading this, I, I, I couldn't help but ask myself, you know, why did God ask for this particular sign? You know, he could have asked for any sign he wanted why circumcision you know in one way it seems too simple you know how can god only require this one act i mean you know with noah he picked a rainbow you know something beautiful to look at but circumcision you know it seems kind of weird until you stop and think about it for a moment circumcision is actually a very interesting choice for a sign. We're not told why, but let me suggest to you this. Circumcision, by its nature, touches the very core of what it means to be a man. In his most intimate and personal moments, each Jewish male, and all those males listed in verses 10 through 14, would forever be reminded that he was a son of the covenant and that he belonged to God. No one else might know he was circumcised, but once he was circumcised, he could never forget it. And let me also suggest that the immediate reason for this sign of circumcision was that every covenant contained a clause concerning the witness to that covenant. In other words, that witness was a perpetual reminder that the covenant existed. Much like the covenant between Jacob and Laban was witnessed by a stone marker in Genesis 31, or God's covenant with Noah, like I said, and the world was witnessed by the rainbow. In Abraham's case, God asked that he and all his male descendants who entered into the covenant carry the reminder of the covenant in their own flesh. Now, the fact that this sign of the covenant was directed specifically to males only signified the special responsibility which God had assigned to the Father. I think this had particular significance to Abraham after his uh, shenanigans with Hagar. God was reminding Abraham that he was the head of his own household, 
And as such, he had to answer to God for what he allowed to happen in his own family. Abraham used his reproductive organ to acquire a son apart from God's primary will. Now, this is God's way of saying, I want the male organ of procreation to be set apart for my purposes rather than for sexual immorality. God is telling Abraham to submit himself to him and that he would bring about his seed through Isaac, ultimately Jesus Christ, in his time and in his way. This is very important to God. The male organ of procreation is the vehicle through which the seed of man passes, ultimately preparing the way for the Messiah. This sign of circumcision alerted a member of the covenant never to use the organ bearing this mark in a promiscuous manner. Guys, all manner of sexual sin comes from a thought, a look, a decision, and finally from the plumbing that God gave you. You know, this equipment that God gave us, you know, is to be used for sexual pleasure in the context of marriage and godly offspring. You know, you guys that work in an office or a place where there are women around, you, you pay close attention. You know, fortunately for me, I work in construction and, and very seldom do I see a woman. Uh, and when I do, the ones that choose to be iron workers, let's just say they're not winning any beauty contests. Um, but you guys that work around women, you be careful. Don't be dipping your pen into the company ink, if, if you know what I mean. You get yourself in trouble. Now, circumcision was not unique to the Hebrews. Research indicates that other Middle Eastern cultures practiced circumcision as well. However, the Hebrews were unique in that they practiced infant circumcision. Now, performing the surgery on an infant, if not done properly, could be very risky and dangerous. You know, there would be risk of infection or they could bleed to death. Now, God designates the eighth day after birth as the day the circumcision should take place. And the fact that he does that is one of the most amazing specifications in the Bible from a medical standpoint. Maybe some of you know this, but I'm going to share this with you. At birth, a baby has nutrients, antibodies, and other substances from his mother's blood, including her blood clotting factors one of them being the substance called prothrombin. Now, prothrombin is dependent on vitamin K for its production. Vitamin K is produced by intestinal bacteria, which are not present in a newborn baby. After birth, prothrombin decreases so that by the third day, it's only 30% of normal levels. Circumcision on the third day could result in a devastating hemorrhage. The intestinal bacteria finally start their task of manufacturing vitamin K, and the prothrombin subsequently begins to climb. On day number eight, it actually overshoots to 110% of normal. 
leveling off to 100% on day nine and remaining there for the rest of a person's healthy life. Therefore, the eighth day was the safest of all days for circumcision to be performed. On that one day, a person's clotting factor is at 110%, the highest ever in their life. And that is the day God prescribed for the surgical process of circumcision. Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think they had scientific ways to find that out back then? I don't think so. Today, vitamin K injections are routinely administered. I remember them giving one to one of my children. And this eliminates the clotting problem altogether. But before the days of vitamin K injections, you look up in some old pediatric textbooks, they recommend that the best day to circumcise a newborn baby was the eighth day of life. God is in the details, guys. Absolutely. Now, it wasn't until much later in time that God revealed what circumcision represented. You know, many of the commands that God gave man early on appeared meaningless or at least difficult to understand at the time they were given. Circumcision was no exception. As an example, God commanded the Israelites to offer up incense during the worship in Exodus chapter 30. You don't have to go there. But there were very strict rules about what incense could be burned and who was allowed to burn the incense. Only the priests were allowed to do so. But when you go to Psalm 141, particularly verse 2, you don't go there, but I'll tell you. It wasn't until hundreds of years later that God used David and he mentions that incense represented prayers to God. So at the time, they didn't really understand what that meant. So in much the same way, God revealed what circumcision represented. Now, if you would turn to Leviticus chapter 26. starting in verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. Here we see that uncircumcision represented stubborn sinfulness. Even though circumcision was done on the outward flesh as an illustration of God's approach to dealing with the flesh, it represented the acceptance of the covenant in the mind, including the willingness to obey the laws within the covenant. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Never thought you'd get so much out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, huh? Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 10. As at the first time, I stayed in the mountain 40 days. I think I'm in the wrong place. I'm sorry, verse 16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. When God told Israel this, it meant that they were to remove their stubborn, sinful thoughts from their minds and become obedient to the laws of God. 
Now look at the result. Flip over to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. And verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. You know, it's no coincidence that we're called to renew our minds, to put on the mind of Christ, to put to death the old man and purge sin from our lives. God's requirement for us is to be obedient. And that requirement hasn't changed. Because that is the key to your spiritual growth. And that's what he desires of each and every one of us. Now, while circumcision served as a permanent reminder to Israel that they needed to obey God's laws, the fact that a man was circumcised didn't mean he actually kept the law. Turn to Romans chapter 2. I think I'm going to go a few minutes over, guys. Okay, is that all right? Romans 2, starting in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So to God, the physical act of circumcision was not nearly as important as the actual obedience that he required. Now, is circumcision something that we as New Testament believers need to adhere to? Quickly turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 7. Starting in verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Circumcising the foreskin is not part of God's covenant with Christians. However, we still have an act that represents circumcision, a witness to the acceptance of God's covenant. And since the emphasis is placed on the removal of sin from a person's life, this equivalent act, circumcision, represents the removal of sin. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So 
baptism represents the removal of sin from a person's life. Now, please understand, baptism does not by any means add to or complete salvation in any way, shape, or form. We know that. We know the only thing that saves us is the blood of Christ. Baptism is simply an outward sign, like circumcision was, of an inward faith, an answer to a good conscience. There are some similarities between baptism and circumcision. Both signify a union with God that has already occurred. Both necessitate the putting away of former things and living a life pleasing to to God. But be careful that you don't take it too far because there are obvious differences which must be kept in mind. Baptism is for believing adults as an indication of their faith in God. Circumcision was performed on infants eight days old and evidenced the faith of their parents, much like how we dedicate children. Baptism was a public sign. Circumcision was a private sign. Baptism is for all believers, male and female. Circumcision was only for males. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. Baptism is not the sign of the new covenant. Partaking of the Lord's table is. You find that in Luke chapter 22. So what does this mean for us in our everyday lives? Well, I would ask you the question, you know, are you regenerated? Did you put off the old man and put on the new man? Did you take to yourself a new name, that of Christian? Did you participate in Christ's death and resurrection, his cutting off and being resurrected from the dead with him? then that means we need to act like it and live like it. There are many Christians in keeping with God that they want also live the lives that they want to. They think they can cuss and drink and, you know, live on both sides of the fence. But, you know, think about this. If, you, if we can't choose the God that we want, you know, God in, in this covenant, he doesn't say, okay, well, I'm going to lay out some things here and you pick the ones you like and, I'll leave the rest. No, God doesn't do that. We can't choose the God that we want. So we can't just choose a life we want either. We have to bring every thought captive. That means every area of our lives is subject to God and to his will. God wants a circumcised heart from his children. This is the very core of our decision-making which ends up being an expression of our identification with Christ, our spiritual fidelity to the Lord. And he concludes this section with a warning in verse 14. He says, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a classic play on words. God's saying, if you don't cut yourself, I'm going to cut you off. Some say this is a reference to execution, either by the Israelites or by God himself by way of a premature death. Some say it meant that they were to be excommunicated and just put out of the camp. I don't know, regardless of which, God was very serious about this. person who refused to participate in circumcision demonstrated his lack of faith in God by his refusal. 
In turn, he broke the covenant of circumcision and was not able to enjoy the blessings of God as guaranteed in the covenant. Now, before we come out of this section in circumcision, I want you to know that in case any of you guys want to be circumcised tonight, Brother Don here brought the appropriate tool. <laughs> and we'll be performing those in the kitchen. It won't take long. Your loved ones will wait. Okay, so uh, don't be shy. All right. Don, Don got that for me tonight, and I was so blessed, you know. He, he always reminds me. I did a study once, and I brought in a wedge. That I, it's a tool that I use at work, you know, to m- maintain separation between, you know, steel beams. And, and he never lets me forget that. He brought that tonight. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> anyway. Uh, He goes on in verses 15 and 16. God transitions in uh, in his discussion with Abraham and focuses on Sarai. Verses 15 and 16, he says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Now, I want you to remember Abraham Remember I said, I want you to remember, he must have thought by now that Ishmael was the chosen seed of the promise. In his mind, God would honor the act that Sarah and Abraham had done and that God would bless Ishmael and make the promised seed come through him. Because after all, Sarah is well past childbearing age. In his mind, in Abraham's mind, there was no way that the promise could be fulfilled in any other way. Remember, God had never told Abraham how this child of the promise would come into being. He only told him that it would come from his own body, which Ishmael certainly did. So naturally, Abraham simply assumed that Ishmael would be the child. God tells Abraham that Sarai will no longer be called Sarai, but Sarah. Now, there's little difference between these two names. There are actually two different forms of the word princess. A small change, but a a change nonetheless. And merely the fact that her name is being changed means something to her. You know, we, we saw that a name change is a pretty important thing, as we saw with Abraham. New name means she's a new person. Now God drops a bomb on Abraham. He says that he will bless Sarah. And Abraham is obviously somewhat startled by this. You know, he's, I'm picturing him thinking, what, you know, bless Sarah in the future? What? What do you mean? And then the real shocker, Sarah will have a son. (laughs) Impossible. She's well past menopause. God is promising that Sarah will have a son. And to really knock it out of the park, God is being emphatic here in two ways. First, God says it in a way that is it were already done. And secondly, again, he repeats himself for emphasis. We know that that was one very important way in uh, which something could be emphasized is by repeating it. And this is what happens here. God mentions her name three times in two verses, and twice he says that he will bless her. You know, this could quite possibly be the most important revelation of this whole chapter. You know, we, we know why God does this. We know why it's so important that Sarah be the mother of the child. Ishmael was the son born of human action, a son born of the will of man. Isaac would be born entirely of the will of God. Later on in chapter 21, the Lord visits Sarah and she conceives. 
this birth would be entirely of the will of God. God chose that Sarah should be the mother of this promised child because God wanted all the glory for himself. He didn't want Abraham to take any credit for this birth, even though he would use Abraham as his instrument. And that is why God visits Sarah and why God gives the name to Isaac. In much the same way, God would appear to Mary many centuries later. Mary would also have a child by supernatural birth. Not by the will of man, John 1.13 says, but entirely by the will of God. Mary was a virgin just as Sarah was barren. Neither could have a child unless God accomplished a miracle. It's important to remember that Sarah was barren because for a woman in those times, that was like a form of death. Sarah was dead, but God made her alive. We were dead, but God made us alive. That's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, about a person being born again. With men, this is impossible. But with God, El Shaddai, all things are possible. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, some say that Abraham's response was a, a laugh of delight. And some say it was a laugh of disbelief. But before you try to determine which, remember what is recorded here is actually not spoken to God. This was Abraham's inner and immediate response to God's proclamation. Remember in the beginning, I told you I wanted you to think of yourself as Abram. Abraham did. Let's put ourselves in this situation for a moment. He began following God at age 75. He's now 99. He's been following God for 24 years. During these years, God has repeatedly told him that he will have a son and will possess the land. After 24 years, what does Abraham have to show for it? One son by a slave? He has nothing. He has a son, but not the one that God recognizes nor does he possess the land. He and Sarah keep getting older. If you were 99 and your wife was 90 and God said you're going to have a son, you might laugh a little bit as well. I know I would. I think this was more of a you you got to be kidding laugh um, than a disrespectful or cynical laugh, a, lack, a laugh of shock, you might say. Now, verse 18 and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, as a father, I can feel the agony of this request. You know, all of Abraham's love and his hopes and dreams have been poured into this boy. You know, he wasn't expecting another son. And he tries to bargain with God to choose Ishmael rather than provide another child. Look at verse 19. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. God's plans would not be changed. He emphatically tells Abraham, no. No substitute son was satisfactory, especially when he was the result of self-effort. God tells Abraham Sarah would have a son and the spiritual blessings could only come about through him. 
Verse 20 and 21. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Notice that even though God states that the spiritual blessings must come through Isaac, God demonstrates his compassion and does not overlook the love of Abraham for his son, nor of his promise to Hagar. Ishmael would become a great nation, and of him would be 12 princes, but the spiritual blessings could only come through Isaac. Our study concludes verses 22 through 27. Then he finished talking with Abram, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day Abraham was circumcised in his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a stranger, were circumcised with him. These verses stress the importance of obedience in our lives as Christians. First, Abraham's obedience is complete. Abraham circumcised every male in his household. The words all and every are used four times in two verses. Secondly, Abraham's obedience is prompt. Abraham obeyed God the very same day, it says. And Abraham's obedience was risky. Circumcision is quite painful and disabling, according to Genesis chapter 34. Uh, Abraham's obedience certainly rendered his family defenseless, yet he trusted God to protect and provide for his family. For us as Christians, sometimes in order to be true to what we read in the scripture about our lives and how we are to interact with others, specifically non-believers, we have to take risks. Sometimes those risks will make you uncomfortable. But as we trust the Holy Spirit to work through us, we can be confident in the work that God has for us. As we come to the end of the initiation and institution chapters of the covenant with Abraham, chapters 12, 15, and 17, we realize that it took nearly a lifetime for Abraham to grasp the promise, which initially took only three verses to record. The more we study the life of Abraham, the more we see that his was a relationship of growth as God revealed to him little by little the details of the covenant. He came to learn more and more about the God who called him. And as he did so, he drew nearer and nearer to God, not just in knowledge, but in intimacy as well. At first, God only spoke to Abraham in chapter 12. 24 years later, he reveals himself to Abraham and speaks with him. During that time in their relationship, there was a long 13-year delay. It's time of silence. Why does God delay in our lives? Because sometimes God's opportunity doesn't come until our human extremity is reached. His opportunity to meet our need may not even begin until we have exhausted our own resources and all other options, including all of our bright ideas. God's delay brings us to a point where we recognize, as did Abraham and Sarah, that there is no human hope. That our only hope is God. 
See, guys, what I got out of this study, if I had to sum it up in one word for me, Abraham gotten into the habit of being content with something less than what God intended. And I think we need to work and fight to not let that happen in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Abraham, for allowing us to understand all of his fear and failure, for allowing us to renew our relationship with you on a daily basis. Father, I ask that you would continue to set your hand upon each one of us here. And Lord, that we would always remain willing to be open and vulnerable to you. Father, we ask that you would just bless the women and bless our travel home, Lord. Meet with us again here next week. In Jesus' name, amen.